Would you all please pray with me? Holy God, you met Paul on the road to Damascus and changed his life through a blinding light. Change us by your spirit in his words. Let us be changed just as Paul was so that we might change the world. Amen. Paul is addressing a troubled church in his letter to the Philippians. Paul has a real conundrum on his hands. There was a controversy among new Christians as to how exactly Gentiles were going to be formed and brought into the church. Did they, these new Gentile converts, need to be circumcised? Division, though, within the church is nothing new. You all know this. The absolute worst meeting, I'm going to be honest with you right now, that I've ever attended, and remember, I used to work for the United States government. (laughs) The worst meeting I've ever been to was a church meeting where we discussed, and I'm not kidding you right now, changing the coffee urns for Sunday mornings. (laughs) The worst. It was a two-hour meeting to talk about coffee urns. Now, in hindsight, there were deeper issues at play. But at the time, tensions ran hotter than the coffee would be should we replace the urns. Controversy within the church, in our communities, comes in all shapes and sizes. And now, lucky us, it comes over smartphones. I don't think I have to tell anyone here this morning that we live in a time and place where it seems like we can only have a conversation with someone else in the following two ways. Either we stay completely on the surface, talking about things like the weather, or traffic, or our kids. Or we can go deeper, only those with those whom we agree with. To associate with or talk to anyone who may disagree with us, theologically, politically, or any other way seems almost impossible lately. The conversations that we try to have online via email, Twitter, or Facebook tend to go from bad to horrific in less than 140 characters. When these conversations go from bad to horrific, one of two things happens. Either we become the victorious hero who battled in the Colosseum of cyberspace, showing no mercy to to our heathen opponent. Or we become the victim who was mercilessly attacked for no other reason than being a good and righteous person. When we are the latter, allies will quickly come behind us And then we will return to our echo chambers. We have a choice. We can retreat to safety, 
or remain engaged in difficult dialogue where at times we will be hard-pressed to find an ally or it will seem like we are completely alone. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is a jailhouse letter. And Paul knew this space all too well. From the book of Acts, we know that Paul was imprisoned at least three times. And in this letter this morning, Paul is responding to the church and giving them thanks and praising them for the prayers and support that they have shown to him while he is in jail. For those of us who have been in church for more than a few hours, it should come as no surprise to know that Christians disagree on theology, doctrine, polity, and music. Hence why we are down here. (laughs) We can look back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation, and see how some of these differences took shape. But Martin Luther was not alone in his discontent with the Catholic Church. Because 1,500 years prior to Martin Luther, the Church was shaped by disagreements over heresy, orthodoxy, and priestly powers. One of the earliest documents in our Christian Christian tradition is called the Didache. Say that. Didache. Now you all know a word that you can use with your friends, and you can tell them it's older than the Bible. So this document, the Didache, was a handbook for the church, explaining how to do all sorts of things, like how to baptize people with running water, or no water, or lukewarm water, or dripping water, or pouring water. I'm serious, it works its way through. And how to live in community with one another. The Didache sought to address many of the disagreements and controversies within the early church. In Paul's letter, he is addressing what he describes as dogs, evil workers, and enemies of the cross. Paul, in his letter, is not suggesting any new practice for the church to take on. Instead, what Paul is doing, he is trying to convince the church of the importance of unity. When he writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, the you and the your are used in the plural sense. And perhaps if Paul was from Texas, it would make more sense. Y'all work out because God is at work in y'all. And by fear and trembling, Paul is not actually meaning that we should be afraid of God. Paul is telling us that we are to be accountable not only to one another, but to the one to whom every knee shall bow. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Our salvation as individuals is hinged upon how well we choose to do this church thing together. If we are a church divided into three services, or a few small groups, or Sunday school, never willing to be the church with those people, then we are doing 
it wrong. If we are a church divided into liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans, we are doing this wrong. If we are a church divided by traditional music or modern music, we are doing it wrong. It's, e- it's easy for us to live out our lives in the church insulated from those who we might agree with. This, re- this results in divisiveness, which Paul tells us, Christ has told us, is contrary to how God is going to work through us, meaning the collective us, Christ's body. And our obedience to this, living in unity with one another, is of the utmost importance because of Christ's obedience to the point of death. We try to place limits on our commitment, not just to the church, but to our own discipleship. And if we are not tending to our own discipleship, how consistent are we being in our commitment to Christ's lordship over every aspect of our lives? Does our commitment mirror that of what the crowds are doing? Meaning, are we following the trends of others when it comes to our level of commitment to Christ? Are we cynical? The world is so screwed up and God hasn't done anything to fix it, so what does it really matter? Perhaps we have become apathetic. We just don't care. The church, sure, it's great, and I've heard Jesus is a nice guy, but I'm not going to reorient my life because, well, I don't care. Or it doesn't matter. Two weeks ago, Bishop Sharma Lewis shared with us the vision of the Virginia Annual Conference. Does anybody remember what that was? You will get extra credit points in heaven, I promise. Take it to the streets. We are to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are lifelong learners who influence others to serve. Let me hear you say, influence others. Influence others. To serve. Perfect. We cannot... We will be unable to live into this vision that we as a church and a district and a conference have prayerfully discerned if we try to do this as individuals. Jesus did not send his disciples out alone. And because of this, we should not. We should never expect to be faithful disciples by ourselves. We cannot learn by ourselves, and we simply cannot influence other people if we are not engaging other people. But are we our own lords, controlling, or we like to think that we are, every aspect of our lives, leaving no room for God to work in us or through us? We've all been there. Engaged in a conversation, turned argument over an idol, which we do not even know that we are subject to. We begin with well-meaning ideas or thoughts, yet quickly we turn towards rhetoric or talking points, and then even personal attacks. These arguments are divisive, lack functionality for a healthy community, and only seek to draw us away from the one Lord who claims obedience over us despite what others are telling us. When we live with Christ as our Lord and still stumble, we may feel as though it is impossible to live a life proclaiming 
that in Christ, in Christ, the one who emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. In that, we find new life. But when we are obedient to Christ's lordship as individuals, we are able to live together as a community, not as different services, Sunday school classes, or small groups. Further, we're then allowing God to work in us and through us as a united community. What I do matters because you depend on me. And what you do matters because as a community of disciples, it is impossible to do the work of the church without each of you. The way we speak of one another matters. Because when we speak poorly of one another, not just in this room, but the body of Christ as a whole, we are showing to the world how we are failing one another. We are telling them, we are telling the world that our differences are bigger than the one who created and the one who was present at creation. As a community obedient to Christ's lordship, we are now free to press one another, to commit to the work of Jesus Christ. We are freed to humble ourselves just as Christ humbled himself. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Christ is the one and the only Lord. We are now free to forgive as Christ forgave us and continues to forgive us. We are freed to love just as Christ loves. Going to the margins of our community, telling those who have been cast aside or told that they are unworthy of God's love, that not only has God never stopped loving them, but that we love them as well. And we are freed to believe as Christ believed, never wavering, always looking to God, even in times of pain and suffering. Suffering is one of those words that we use in church that cause many people to squirm and to get uncomfortable because, after all, no one wants to suffer. By definition, suffering is not inherently good. But remember that in Christ's own suffering, we find new life. Suffering is thus redefined as a way that God is glorified. And so while not all of us in this room will suffer for our faith, others might. When we walk alongside fellow disciples who are suffering, we become witness to Christ's ability to overcome that suffering. Paul's letter to a divided church, both then and now, along with the promise of God working in and through us, gives us hope. Reminding us that even if we do not agree, even if we have a semi-public blowout, that God is working in the midst of what seems like chaos. When we are feeling hard-pressed, feeling like we or they are doing it wrong, or that what we are doing doesn't matter, we can still lift our voices, joining that very first hymn, of the church, singing Christ Jesus, who through him 
was the form of God, emptied himself, took on the form of a slave, and was born into human likeness. He humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we live in the way of confession to Christ, we bend our knees to nothing else except for Christ Jesus. In the act of kneeling, we are proclaiming that the living God is at work here in Mount Olivet, just as our Creator was at work in the generations before us. The good news of Jesus Christ serves as a witness to our sisters and brothers in Christ, as well as those who believe that the church is hypocritical, serves only a social club status, or those who have been told that they are unworthy of God's love. The task of living together in community with one another, when it seems that every day we are facing 140 characters that have the potential to divide us. Living in that is kingdom building work. Mount Olivet, this church, this community is a living witness, a living echo of Paul's words that not only are we looking out for our own interests, but that Christ is Lord of everything. Amen.